Um, it'll be a challenge, but like every good thing that requires a little bit of work, there is a huge payoff. So anyways, invite you at 6.30. Um, we will, it, it, that's a hybrid class, so we both meet here at the church, downstairs, as well as online. So if you need to Zoom in, um, just text myself or Simone or email us, and we'll make sure you have the Zoom code, and that usually goes 6.30 to 7.45 or so, um, and I, it's, a, it's a great time. Uh, the Women's Bible Study is continuing on, studying the attributes of God from 9 to 10.30 at um, Chaparral Pines at the clubhouse there, so you can stay for lunch if you want. If you want more information, talk to Simone. And uh, also don't forget that uh, fellowship meal this the 18th, which is the third Sunday of every month. So keep those things in mind. And finally, one last thing, um, and that's just to once again recognize and be thankful um, to Charlie and Sandra and the Lopez family for opening up Reconciled Church for us the past two weeks. Um, we were kind of refugees, not allowed to come back here and worship, but they opened their doors for us, and we had a home. And as great as it was, great just to be able to uh, to join with them. And uh, so, thank you, Charlie, um, for for that. We we are blessed. And as great as it is to uh, to travel and to to worship in other places, it's always good to be home. And I am glad to be home here in this place. So to get back going again, we've also had some guest speakers the past few weeks. We'll have one in a couple of more weeks. But it's good to be back behind. It's good to take a rest. But it's really good to be back behind the pulpit. I feel good here. So let's pray. Father, we come before you this day. This is the day that we in this country celebrate independence, freedom. We thank you, Lord God, for the freedoms that you've given us. And we especially thank you for the freedom to worship. It is one, Lord God, where we do so without fear. And at least for now, Lord God, I think that freedom is being eroded away, but for now we praise you. And we thank you. If that freedom's taken away, we will continue to praise you and thank you. For even there, Lord God, you have not been removed. So we thank you, Lord God, for the freedom that you have given us to us this day. And it causes us to remember those who are not free. Slavery continues, and we pray for a complete abolition. We think of slavery as something that happened a long time ago. But slavery is happening right now, today, as we pray. And we pray for utter and total, complete, thorough abolition. Human trafficking, Lord God, is rampant. Men and women, boys and girls, are enslaved for prostitution, even organ donation. These are slaves, Lord God, whose will is captive to another. We pray, Father God, for abolition. We pray, Father God, for those who are forced to labor. Sometimes it's in repayment of debt, and it's a debt that they will never repay, but they are forced by slavery into paying off their debt. We see slavery of children, Lord God, into marriages and to be soldiers. The wickedness of men 
is on full display. Lord, while we are free, men and women, boys and girls created in your image are not. And so, Lord, let us remember as we celebrate this day, let us remember and fight hard for your creation, Lord God, to set others free. We also pray for those who are enslaved to sin. Jesus said that the one we obey, that is the one we are slaves to. He also said the one whom the Son sets free is free indeed, and it was for freedom that we have been set free, and it was for freedom that you came. So Lord, let us be faithful with a message of freedom that frees not only from temporal slavery, Lord God, but slavery to sin that will condemn us forever. So help us this day, Father God, to rejoice and remember all that we have and all that you purchased for us. We give you praise. We give you thanks. Hallelujah. Amen. If you will, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 34. We actually just have today and then two more weeks after um, this. So July, I think July 25th will be our last week in the book of Numbers. After that, I'm going to study, we're going to spend five weeks in the book of Psalms, and then we will pick up and start um, a study in 1 Corinthians. But for now, we have three more chapters, including today, in the book of Numbers. I hope you're enjoying it. I've learned a lot. It's actually been a blessing to me. I hope it has been for you as well. So as you turn to, uh, to the book of Numbers, chapter 34, um, just a, a, a brief, I don't know, statement. See, in December of 2019, uh, my mom passed away. And she was a, a wonderful individual. But when she passed away, she had next to nothing. She was a very content lady, despite the fact that she had really nothing. A few, a few assets. Despite the fact that she had very little, what she did have, she willed to my sister and myself. So before she passed away, she willed by her own free will, by her own choice, she chose my sister and myself to receive everything that was hers. And why did she choose my sister and myself? Well, the very simple reason that she chose my sister and myself to receive all that she had is because we are her son and her daughter. And on that basis, everything that was hers is now ours. I think the idea of inheritance is going to play a major, well, I don't think. It's going to play a major role in today's message. That's right. I'm not just thinking. It's like, yeah, I've already written the message. Um, it will play a major role in today's message as well as the issue of land. Land and inheritance are big, big factors because the land was the inheritance for the Israelites. And so we need to spend, we're going to spend a little bit of time dealing with that. But let me give you... Um, the uh, let me just kind of review where we have been 
so that we're all kind of on the, the, same, the same page. Do I not have a map? Okay. Ah, oh, technology. Well, you'll just have to use your imagination or look at the maps in the back of your Bible or do some studying. But here's where we're at. Um, the people of Israel have traveled out of Egypt. They were delivered um, from Egypt during the Exodus um, after Passover. And they traveled 40 years across the wilderness. And they are now on the eastern banks of the Jordan River. And Moses is spending this time uh, to recount how God has been faithful, how God brought them from this campsite to that campsite to this place to that place. And God has been faithful for 40 years. And he has also then called the people to remove everything that is vile in the land, all that is vile. So God has been faithful. He's bringing you into the land. When you enter into the land, it is your task to remove all that is vile and all that will cause you to sin and forsake the Lord your God. And so that's pretty much where we are. They are not in the promised land yet. um, They are just on the banks of the Jordan River on the east side, getting ready to cross over to the west side. That's where we have been. Just a quick designation or a quick little preview of where um, my intent of going today is, is we are going to see a couple of things. First of all, we're going to see the designation of the borders of the promised land. So for for years, Moses has been saying, I'm going to lead you to a land filled with milk and honey, um, to the promised land. He promises to Abraham. And now they are getting ready to enter into the promised land, and God is going to provide for them or designate for them what are the borders, what are the boundaries of this land that is flowing with milk and honey. Is it everywhere west of the Jordan, as far north and as far east as we can go? How? What are the borders and the boundaries of this land of promise? So that's the thing we're going to see in Numbers chapter 34. The next thing we're going to do, as we have done pretty much every week um, as we've studied the book of Numbers, and that is we will... Um, consider the gospel connections. It is important that we remember that the book of Numbers and the, 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 the events in the book of Numbers, actually the events in the entirety of the Old Testament, find their fulfillment in the New Testament, actually find their fulfillment in the person of Christ. So we're going to read this, and I want you to begin thinking, how is this fulfilled in the person of Christ? After all, Jesus said, that the Old Testament speaks about him. Paul says, these things have been written down for your benefit. They are written for our good. Jesus said, the Old Testament points to me. Luke 24, John chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 10. And so one of the things we want to do is not leave these events in the book of Numbers in 15th century Bronze Age people, but actually see how they are fulfilled in the person of Christ. So that's our our direction. We're going to look at the borders. We're going to then look at the gospel connection. So if you will, um, follow with me as we read um, in, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 34. Listen to the word of the true and living God. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, 
This is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan as defined by its borders. Your south side shall be from the wilderness of Zin alongside Edom, and your southern border shall run from the end of the Salt Sea on the east, and your border shall turn south of the ascent to Akrabim across Zin, that its limit shall be south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it shall go on to Hazar Adar, pass along to Asman, and the border shall turn from Asman to the brook of Egypt, and its limit shall be the sea. For the western border, you shall have the great sea and its coast. This shall be your western border. This shall be your northern border. From the great sea, you shall draw a line to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, you shall draw a line to Lebo Hamath, and the limit of the border shall be Zadad. Then the border shall extend from Ziphron, and its limit shall be Hazar Anan. This shall be your northern border. You shall draw a line for your eastern border from Hazar Anan to Shethem, and the border shall go down from Shethem to Riblah and on the east side of Ain. And on the border shall go down and reach the shoulder of the Sea of Kinnereth on the east, and the border shall go down to the Jordan, and its limit shall be the Salt Sea. This shall be your land as defined by its border all around. Moses commanded the people of Israel, saying, This is the land that you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe. The tribe of the people of Reuben by the father's house and the tribe of the people by Gad by their father's house, houses have received their inheritance, and also the half-tribe of Manasseh. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, toward the sunrise. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land to you for an inheritance, Eleazar the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun. You shall take one of the chief from every tribe to divide the land for an inheritance. These are the names of the men of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of the tribe of the people of Simeon, Shemuel, the son of Aminahud, of the tribe of Benjamin, Eladad, the son of Kislon, of the tribe of Dan, the peep, a chief, Buki, the son of Yogli, and of the people of Joseph, the tribe of the people of Manasseh, a chief, Haniel, the son of Ephod, and from the tribe of the people of Ephraim, a chief, Kemuel, the son of Shiphtan, of the tribe of the people of Zebulun, a chief, Elizaphan, the son of Parnach, of the tribe of the people of Issachar, a chief, Paltiel, the son of Atzin, and of the tribe of the people of Asher, a chief, Ahihud, the son of Shelemai, of the tribe of the people of Naphtali, a chief, Pedahel, the son of Aminahud. These are the men whom the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance for the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. May the Lord bless and keep his word in our hearts and mind. Well, this is actually a pretty simple passage of text to to interpret. Um, There's not a lot of difficulty here. We don't know, sometimes some of the places are difficult to locate, um, so there might be a little bit of uncertainty. But as far as what's going on here, not real difficult. This is your northern border, this is your southern border, this is your eastern border, this is your western border. That's really it. Let me point out one or two things. The first thing I want to point out in this geography lesson is the continued assurance from God. And, and you might have picked this up. 
And this is um, in verse 2. Command the people of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land. When, when you enter the land. This is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. When you enter the land, you are going to enter the land. And you can understand that perhaps the people may have had some second thoughts, maybe some wonderment whether or not they would actually enter the land because don't, re- don't forget, this is the second generation that came out of Egypt. The first generation came out of Egypt and they died in the wilderness. And only two individuals from that first generation are going to enter into this land and that is Caleb and Joshua. Not even Moses is going to enter into the land of promise because of his unbelief. The people did not believe and they died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Even Moses did not believe and he will die in the wilderness. And people will be saying, well, can we be certain? God says you can be certain when you enter the land. You will enter the land. I will fulfill my promise to Abraham. Look around you and note the people are as the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky, just like I promised to Abraham when he had no heir. Now he's got a multitude of heirs and I will give you the land when you enter. It is yours because I keep my promises. So the first thing we see is this continued assurance from God. The second thing we begin to see is just the borders of the promised land. The borders southwest, east, north, and east. Just one, I don't know, observation is I find it interesting that there are borders at all. That is, that their task, at least militarily, was not global conquest. They are not to be Alexander the Great. They are not to be Nebuchadnezzar. Their goal is not, in a military sense, to conquer the entire world. God has given them borders and boundaries. Here you will dwell. It is a place where God will dwell in the midst of his people. And then we have a mention of some of the, what we call the Transjordan tribes. So the, the, the promised land is east of the Jordan between the Mediterranean Sea, which in the Bible is the Great Sea, and the Jordan River, north to the Sea of Galilee, south to the Dead Sea. That's the approximate um, geography. But there were two and a half tribes that inherited land on the east side of the Jordan River. Um, the Transjordan tribes, two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. And so a quick mention is, is given to them. They've received their inheritance. And then what we see is the representatives who are going to divvy up the land. Of these tribes, here's your representative. They're going to divvy up the land. So that's it. Pretty simple, isn't it? Of course, you know we're not done, but (laughs) that's it. I do want to point out two things. This will be important for us as we go along. Two key words. Did you pick them up as we go along? One of the things we want to do as we look into Scripture and one of the interpretive um, keys in interpreting Scripture is look for key words. 
Key words are often repeated words. And so land is repeated eight times in these verses and inheritance seven times. I think we should spend some time and talk about land and inheritance. Well, so that's what we're going to do. The first question that, that I want to ask, um, or I ask myself, and uh, I think is important, is what is the significance of land? Why was land so important? It was no doubt a principle promise of the covenant that God made with Abraham. He made, he said, to you I will give seed and I will give land. Two things. Oh, and I will make your name great and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. But ultimately, we see there is a promise to seed. I will make you the father of a great nation. You will be as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And I will give you land. So what is the significance of land? Not only was it the promise of Abraham, but why the land? Because is it only, and I guess our question would be this, or the follow-up question would be this, is it simply a place to live? I'm giving you a piece of real estate so you have a place to build houses and build cities and grow crops and raise cattle. Is that what this is about? Just so that you have a place where you can um, sustain your life and call your own. Is this a real estate issue? Well, the way we're going to approach this is we are going to see how is land dealt with in the Bible. And the way we're going to deal with this is um, we're going to take a biblical theological approach, and that may sound real scary to you, but all it is is we are just going to very briefly look at how God deals with the topic of land and inheritance throughout the Bible. So we're going to try to trace these themes from the beginning to the end of the Bible and try to come to an understanding of what does what is the importance, what is the meaning of land, and then we'll deal with what is the meaning of inheritance. So that's what we're going to deal with. So let's first look at the first place we see land in the Bible, which is in Genesis 1. What is the land called? It is called Eden. It was a land that was given by grace. It was a land that was prepared by God for his people. Before he ever created man and woman, he created a place for them. It was a perfect place. It would sustain them well. It was a place then that man, Adam, and Eve were placed. It was a temple garden. Now, oftentimes when we talk about Eden, we focus on the garden aspect. It was lush. It had trees and it had fruits and it was a wonderful, it had a river running through the middle of it. We think of it in the garden aspect, but let's not neglect the temple aspect because it was here that God and man communed. He was their God. This was the place where he was their God and they were his people where they walked together in covenant fellowship with one another. That there is no separation between us. God and man dwelling together. That's the very definition of a temple. It is where God meets man. And man communes with God. And it is in this temple garden that he was their God. And they were his people. And he gave them a couple of commands. And one of the commands was this. Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, expand, have kids. This isn't simply about progeny. Remember, man and woman, 
They are the image of God. Make more image bearers and spread out the garden so that the garden's borders, pretty soon you will expand and the garden will not be able to hold all of your seed. And so therefore the garden borders expand and soon the image of God is covering the, the face of the earth and the glory and the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is the original creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Make image bearers who go out and spread my image throughout the entire globe. Humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. They are placed in the land to bear his image and live under his blessing. Something disrupted that, the fall. A vile creature. A vile creature was not removed by man, and man succumbed to his temptation and was separated from God. We call that the fall. The fall results in what? It results in alienation from the land. The Lord drives them out of the garden and drives them out from his presence. A tragic a tragic event. And so man is sins because he does not remove that which is vile from the garden. He succumbs to temptation. He falls. He sins against the holy God. There is now a separation between him and God. He is cast out of the land, driven from the land, and separated from God. FYI, the remainder of the Bible is God restoring what was broken. As you read from Genesis chapter 3 to to Revelation 22, the rest of the Bible is God putting back what was broken. Actually, he'll make it better. That's the first land we see. It was given to Adam and Eve. It was a temple garden. It was a place where God and man dwelt. God, or Man sinned and was cast out from the very presence of God. The second thing we see is the promised land. It's interesting because the borders of the promised land are extremely imprecise. You will see numerous borders or boundaries given for the promised land. But note this, the the promised land is given by grace. It was prepared for God's people. It was given to them by grace. Remember, the promised land belongs to God. They are simply, the people of God, Israel, are simply heirs. They are, they inherit the land, but they are, it is not theirs. It belongs to God. And, And why? Once again, why? Why the promised land? Exodus chapter 23 and following actually helps us a lot here, and I'll just speak very broadly. Exodus 23 talks about the borders of the promised land. You will enter a land filled with milk, uh, flowing with milk and honey. This will be the land that I will give you. But then he goes on, and in chapter 24, he talks about a covenant. In this land, I will make a covenant with you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Build a temple in the land. So the promise of land, followed by a covenant, followed by a tabernacle. So what makes the land significant? 
the thing that makes the land significant is the presence of God. It is not the fact that it's flowing with milk and honey or that it has mountains or valleys or that it's beautiful or any of that. What makes the land significant is the fact that God is present with his people. Build a temple and destroy the vile things that pollute the land and tempt you to abandon the Lord lest you be cast out as well. I'm giving you a land. It is where you and I will commune together. I will be your God. You will be my people. We will fellowship with one another uh, according to the covenant that I have established. Make sure you remove all that is vile from the land because it will become a snare to you. And if it's a snare to you and you sin, I will cast you out. I've done it before. Of course, we know that Israel, like Adam, was unfaithful to God. And God cast them out of the land and sent them into exile. Fast forward to the time of Jesus. This is a huge subject, so I'm moving very quickly. The land and the time of Jesus. Israel is once again living in the land, but note this, it is occupied by pagan rulers. Jerusalem was conquered in 586 B.C. The Jews returned to the promised land 70 years later. But they lived as people who were under the authority of pagan rulers. First Babylon and then the Medo-Persians. Then we have um, Greece and then we have Rome. It's amazing. All of the promises you, you read in the prophets how the land is going to be restored, all of these things, and here they are living under the hand and under the thumb of pagan oppressors. The Messiah was expected to cast out those vile occupiers and cleanse the lands. Jesus did not do this. They expected Messiah to come in, kick out these interlopers, kick out these oppressors, destroy them, and return the land to its former glory. If you're Messiah, do this. Jesus didn't. What Jesus did was absolutely way more amazing. He did not return a piece of property to the people. He did something way better. We should not be surprised. And so just a quick summary of this point. The land is more than coordinates on a map. It is a place where God and man dwell together the land is the place where God is present. He is their God, and they are his people. That's the significance of the land. It may be a bunch of other things. It's certainly a place to grow crops. It's certainly a place to raise your kids. It's certainly a place to build cities. It's certainly all of the above. But ultimately, the land is where God and man commune together. It is the place where it is basically God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's what it's about. All right. Thanks, John, for that biblical, theological understanding of the land. Now what? Well, let's look at some gospel connections. Does this have anything to do? You're going, what does that have to do with me? What does it have to do with us? What does it have to do with salvation? Well, I'll explain to you that. Let's talk about some gospel connections. And first, I'll ask the question, how are the promises of land and inheritance addressed in the New Testament? Because the land in the Old Testament was the inheritance. How is land and inheritance dealt with in the New Testament? Because here's the significant thing. 
it, is, it should shock us when we read the New Testament, when we deal with the issue of land. Because in the Old Testament, land is everywhere. It is a, it is a primary topic of the biblical author's material is talking about land. And then you get into the New Testament, crickets. Almost nothing about land. Virtually absent. Jesus doesn't talk about land. The apostles talk very, very, if any, about land. They all talk about inheritance, however. So we ask the question, what happened? Why is the land promise such a big deal in the Old Testament and not mentioned virtually at all in the New Testament? That should shock us. That should cause flares to go up. What's going on here? Again, really big subject. Let me see if I can boil this down. First question I will ask is this. What is the inheritance of believers? If land is the inheritance of Israel, and land is not mentioned in the New Testament, but inheritance is, what is our inheritance? What is the inheritance that the New Testament speaks of as our... If it's not a piece of land, what is it? John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, gives us, I think, perhaps the most definitive indicator of what the inheritance is. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, note this, that where I am, you may be also. Let not your heart believe in God. In my Father's house are many rooms or many mansions, and we sing songs about mansions, and we hear stories about streets of gold. That's not the essence. Where I am, you may be also. God and man dwelling together in peaceful covenant relationship. That is our hope. That is the promise. Not gold, not mansions, not rooms, none of it. Where I am, you will be. I'm going to go. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Very Edenic-like speech, isn't it? I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Just as God prepared a place for Adam and Eve, Jesus says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And when I'm done, I'm going to come and get you. And what's the great thing about what, what's going to happen when I come and get you isn't that you are going to have a mansion or streets of gold. It is that we will be together. You see, land is not ultimate. Jesus is. Oh, folks, I'm not talking about anything new here. Old Testament saints got this. I don't know. Since we don't have stuff on the screen, I will have to turn to our scriptures. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 10 and verse 16. Uh, This is the roll call of faith. And the author of Hebrews is talking about Abraham and other faithful saints. And he says this um, in verse 10, for he, speaking of um, Abraham, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. God. God promised him a place, a land, borders, boundaries, geography, real estate, and Abraham knows that I'm looking forward not to a place of geography, real estate, borders, and boundaries, 
coordinates on a map, but to a city that is much greater than any of that geography can be, a city whose builder is God. And then verse 16, it goes on, and he says, but as it is, they, speaking of the um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Folks, God all said, I'm going to give you a piece of property, but even the Old Testament says the property, the land, the geography is not ultimate. God is. They understood it. And then there's this incredible therefore. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. What an incredible promise that is. Stand before the, the holy God of the universe. How can you receive me? How can I enter into your presence? And God is, I am not ashamed to be called your God. I'm, what an awesome promise. Never ashamed. The Old Testament saints looked beyond the land. They looked beyond to what it represented. They understood an, e- an eternal inheritance was found in the new heavens and the new earth. So just a quick summary. Believers inherit They inherit a place, but it's not a piece of land. Our inheritance is something else. What do we inherit? We inherit Christ. That where he is, we may be also. So how is this inheritance expressed in the New Testament? Well, there's a couple ways it's expressed. In Matthew chapter 19, 29, it's expressed as eternal life, as people who inherit eternal life. What do we inherit? What is our inheritance? Eternal life. With who? With Christ. It is expressed in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Galatians 5, 21. This inheritance is expressed as the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? I think the best definition I've got of the kingdom of God is, I've already stated it before, God's people in God's place under God's rule. That we will be in his kingdom I believe the kingdom has become, has already begun. It is already here because the king has come, but it is also a future reality that we will see in its fullness and in the future. The kingdom is here, and yet the kingdom is not yet. And in Hebrews chapter 1, 14, the inheritance is expressed like this, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Inheritance is expressed as eternal life, as the kingdom of God. It's expressed as salvation. That is the inheritance of the people of God, not a piece of property. My next question is this, on what basis can I claim this inheritance? If it's true then that the inheritance is is Christ himself, eternal life with Christ himself, living under God's rule as God's people. Um, If that is so, okay, how do I get that? How do I gain access to this inheritance? Oh, folks, the symbolism of land and promise of inheritance are a dominant theme in in the New Testament. And perhaps... One passage of text that so clearly defines this, it says this, 1 Peter chapter 1, I'll begin with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter begins with an exaltation. Blessed be God. 
according to his great mercy. What has he done according to his great mercy? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven by you, by God's power. Blessed be the God. This is why Peter's rejoicing. This is why Peter stands and lifts his hands. I don't know if he lifted his hands. But exclaims, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What has he done? He has, by his great mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope. He caused us to be born again. To what? To an inheritance. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and by the way, it's kept in heaven by God for you who are being guarded by God. (laughs) How do I gain this inheritance? True believers are the children of God and therefore receive an inheritance from him. Why did I receive an inheritance from my mom? Because I was her child. That's it. I belong to her. John chapter 1, 14, verses 1 through 4. We've already looked at this, but let's look at it again in light of true believers as the children of God receiving an inheritance. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. John 17, 24 also expresses this in Jesus' high priestly prayer. He says this, Father, I desire that they, disciples also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Here is my prayer. Jesus' prayer. What was it? That we would be with him. What an awesome thing. Jesus prays that we would be with him. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. Oh, this is, this is the inheritance. And we are heirs by adoption. See, Ephesians tells us that we are by nature children of wrath. But when a person is joined in union with Christ, a person then is adopted into the family of God and becomes an heir. Why did my sister and I receive an inheritance from my mom? It's because we were sons and daughters. You who are in Christ have been adopted by him. You are an heir of everything that God has. This is yours. One of the great, and I didn't have time to go off on this, but one of the great things is we, we talk about inheritance. There's passages in, in, the, in both Old and New that talk about we are God's inheritance. God inherits us. We inherit him. Man and God walking, communing together. We are heirs by adoption. But we don't want to stop here. What is the essence of land promises? Too often times when we talk about land in the Bible, we stop at Malachi. And we think that the land promises simply have to do with geography. But it's really the essence of the land is man living in communion with God. Even Abraham understood this. Abraham understood that the promised land pointed to something else, that it pointed to something better. 
So what is the better? Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the land, through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. Notice the garden imagery. A river flowing through the middle, the tree of life. Very Eden-like, isn't it? And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any accursed thing. It has been cast out. The vile thing has been cast out. Sin, death, sickness, all that is vile has been cast out by the work of Christ. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. This is the promise. This is what we inherit. This is ours by how? By adoption, because we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. That where I am, you may be also. What's it like where you are going to be? Well, there's this river of life running through the middle of it, and there is a tree of life, and there is healing for the nations. All vile things are gone, and I will be your God, you will be my people, and we will dwell together. I am your inheritance. I'll conclude this way. The land promises in the Old Testament are important, but they are not ultimate. Like all types and shadows in the Old Testament, they find their fulfillment, they find their substance in the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, we will inherit a new land. We will inherit land. Make no mistake about it. It is a garden temple. It is the place where Christ, who has cast out the vile thing, lives and reigns with his own. And and his own are those who will receive this inheritance. I told you when in Eden there was a, what we call the creation mandate. The creation mandate was very simple to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. There is a creation mandate for you and I as well. It goes like this. It is exactly the same. It is really no different. But it goes like this. Here's the creation mandate for believers. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Make more image bearers. Create more children of God by the grace of God through the gospel. I will adopt them. They will be mine. We will dwell together. The mandate is in full effect for us. Let us as inheritors, as heirs, as children of God, as sons and daughters of God, declare the gospel that the glory, that the knowledge of the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is our commission. Father, we are grateful this day. We are thankful that you've made us heirs, that you've made us children, that you've given us an inheritance. We did not deserve it. We have sinned abundantly. Again, you had every reason to cast us out as one of the vile things. But you created a place and you created a means 
and the means is the cross of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. And I pray, Father God, that if there are any here or any listening, Lord God, that, you, that the people would call upon your name and be saved, that they would worship you and that as brothers and sisters, as children of God, we would be grateful to inherit all that you have given us. We will be God's people living in God's place under God's rule to the glory of God. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's stand and we will sing our final song. Amen. And now our last thing to do is to depart with a blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.